Let's pray. Thank you, God, for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. Teach us through your word and equip us for every good work for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, yeah, so as James has said, uh, we have two readings uh, tonight, one from Jonah 3 and one from Matthew 16. Um, let's start in Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began, began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed. They believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may, re- God may yet relent and and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. The second reading uh, is from Matthew chapter 16. Starting from verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, that, by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it, except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you you still not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you do not understand that I was not talking to you about the bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast using bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter asked, answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not to reveal to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Evening, everyone. I have my welcome to that of James, and especially if you're new or visiting. And like James said, we're absolutely delighted you've decided to be with us tonight. Uh, Keep your Bibles open, and uh, I'll lead us in prayer briefly as we come to this wonderful part of Matthew's Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks to us, and you speak to us in your word for our good. We pray that tonight you'd help us to set aside distractions and hindrances, uh, that we would tremble and rejoice at your word, and on account of considering it carefully, become more and more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Just want to see, I've got the power. Let's see. I do. Such a good feeling. <laughs> uh, brothers and sisters, it was around 23 years ago when I first started to consider this really crazy thought what if there really is a true and living actual God. You see, before that, I was atheist, like a lot of Jews, uh, I was was atheist. And I started having these little sort of uh, things in my mind where I said, like not out loud, but I said, hey God, if you're real, then this taxi that I'm waiting for at the moment, make it come within the space of three and a half to four and a half minutes or or something like that. By the way, for you young ones, a taxi is an old-fashioned word for an Uber, right? That, that, That kind of thing. Later on, now as a Christian, now as a follower of Jesus, I had thoughts that went, on along, uh, went along the lines of this, right? God, I know the whole doubting Thomas thing. You know Thomas, he was one of the disciples and he didn't believe that Jesus had really raised from the dead, but when he finally met Jesus, Jesus said, check out the scars, feel the side. Blessed are you, Thomas, you've seen me and now you believe. But Jesus also said, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe, right? God, I know about that. I get that. That's legit. But you know, God, it would still be so cool and so assuring if you give me just some sort of supernatural display that you really are God and Jesus really is the risen Christ. That was another thought that I had. Then there were these other times in my Christian life where I had this thought. You know, in the book of Acts, you ever read the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, there's all these miraculous healings and these supernatural events that seem to just kind of affirm the gospel message. Well, I've never seen some person, you know, touch a woman who has cancer and all the cancer just goes away and she's perfectly healed. I've never seen that. I've never seen some guy tell the praises of God in Mandarin Chinese and yet me understand perfectly what he's saying. I never had that experience. I know there's like the videos that you can see on YouTube of the faith healers out there, you know, like the Benny Hins of this world, but everyone knows that's all rubbish. I haven't actually seen a real and inexplicable visual display of the divine power right in front of me. 
like it seems that these people did. And so is the Christianity that I know right? Is it the real deal or have I got a fraud? God, if only I had some sort of supernatural sign, then I would know for sure. Now, I wonder if you've been a bit like me at at periods throughout your Christian life, or maybe you're thinking about it right now because I've just raised it. Yeah, why don't we see all these kind of miraculous things like you you kind of see in the Bible, right? Well, friends, as we come to this week's instalment from Matthew's Gospel, we gain an understanding of why it is that genuine belief is not especially concerned with supernatural signs, but that it is very concerned with supernatural revelation. Not very much concerned with supernatural signs, but very concerned with supernatural revelation. Now, why do I say that and what do I mean by that? Well, that's what we're going to find out. I hope you've got your Bibles open. Our opening verse says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, presumably the sign from heaven would be a sign to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. But the reason for their question is not because they genuinely want to believe that Jesus is the Christ, but it's actually because they want a reason to reject and condemn him. And we're not ascribing motive when we say that. That's absolutely legit. We know it to be the case. There's three reasons that's the case. First of all, you notice it's both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are two sects of Judaism that are absolutely opposed to each other. These people don't get on. Their beliefs about God and his word are so irreconcilable with each other. And yet, here they've banded together to, note, test Jesus. They're already on the attack. Secondly, Jesus has done all kinds of supernatural, miraculous things that point to him being the son of God, including in the region where these Pharisees and Sadducees currently are. And thirdly, and this is a real nail in the coffin, this is not the first time that this has happened. They've asked this before. Back in chapter 12, which... To be fair, it was in turn one last year that we were back in chapter 12. But back in chapter 12 of this same gospel, Jesus was in the same vicinity, roughly, that he is now, and he did a miraculous healing that was very specific. It very specifically showed that he is the long-expected servant of the Lord who would give sight to the blind and who would give speech to the mute. Have a look at it. I'm put the words on the screen. Back from chapter 12 and verse 22. They brought him, that is Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now, you've got to remember, if you're a first century Jew, you've got the, the prophet Isaiah in your mind as soon as you see this. You know, the, the servant of the Lord's going to come, and the lame are going to walk, and the blind are going to see, and the mute are going to speak. Right? That, Uh, That is what they think, actually. Look at verse 23. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Look what he's doing. Is this guy the Messiah? But, verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebul, nickname for Satan, right? You see, they don't deny the miraculous power of Jesus. No, none of his enemies even denied that he, he did the, had the power of God. 
But instead of making the logical conclusion that it points to him being the Christ, they simply ascribe his ability to evil demonic forces. And then a bit later on in that same chapter, we see that some of the Pharisees, probably the same ones, and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We know you've just shown yourself to be the Christ and we've basically said you're in league with Satan himself, but teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And so, of course, verse 39, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Noah. They didn't even have a sign. Basically, Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, the reason you guys, you're asking for a sign is not because you're genuinely interested in believing the truth about who I am, but because you're looking for an excuse to reject and condemn me because you know that I'm a threat to your whole false religious system. Now, once you got that bit of vital background information, and you come back here to our passage in Matthew 16, you understand why Jesus is so dismissive straight away of these Pharisees and now Sadducees who are testing him. So verse 2 of where we are in, in Matthew 16, Jesus replied, when evening comes, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning, today it'll be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. It's a really emphatic mic drop, I'm out of here kind of thing, right? To put it in the, the silly Ben framework, this is how I think of it. It's like Jesus saying, to people like you guys, who apparently know and study God's word, you Pharisees and Sadducees, it's patently obvious that I am the Christ that God promised. The mute speak, the lame walk, Gosh, even as we saw last week from Adam's brilliant sermon, the Gentiles are flocking figuratively to God's house and being healed and praising the God of Israel, right? All the things you would expect to see the Christ doing. If you guys can know that a bit of red and overcast sky means there's going to be a storm later, then it should be just as simple for you especially to know that everything I'm doing points to the messianic age and therefore I am the Christ, and by the way, you remember those scumbag pagan Ninevites? Because that's how the Israelites saw them back in the day. They only needed the very reluctant preaching of the prophet Jonah and they repented. You guys, you got all the word of God and you know all the powerful signs I've given, but because you want to reject me, no amount of evidence will ever be enough. So tough rocks, you get nothing. By the way, there's still a lot of people like that today. Uh, people who are outside of Christ and his church and no amount of evidence, no amount of argument or discussion, no amount of looking the Bible is ever good enough to convince them that Jesus Christ is Lord because they're not investigating to discover that he's the Christ. They're investigating in order to make sure they remain in rebellion against him. By the way, Jesus' approach here is the same approach he has consistently all throughout his earthly ministry. In John's Gospel, right, the fourth Gospel, 
We're told that there were people who believed in Jesus' name, which sounds really good, but on account of the signs that he did. And we're told straight afterwards that Jesus would not entrust himself to people like that. That's because Jesus knew it was possible, nay, even likely, for people to be blown away by his miraculous power, but not really be interested in what the signs signified. In fact, there's actually a point in another gospel, in John's gospel, where the reason people don't believe in Jesus' word is because they believe in his signs. It's fascinating, read John's gospel, but check it out later, we're in Matthew. Friends, we say a picture is worth a thousand words, but that's not really true. Every art gallery you go to, if you ever go to art galleries, I suppose at school you might have to go to one every now and then, every art gallery you go to, there's this little plaque under the piece of art that's got words and it tells you the thing you're looking at and explains it to you. See, a picture's not worth a thousand words, you need at least a few of those words to know the picture. Jesus' signs are all about affirming and attesting to the Word of God. But because they are supernatural and miraculous and amazing, people can be impressed by their power, but ignore the Word of God that they're illustrating. When such people become teachers of the Word of God, like these Pharisees and Sadducees, their obsession with signs is actually an indication they don't believe the Word that they're supposed to be teaching. That's why in the next section, Jesus warns his followers to be on their guard against the teaching of these Sadducees and Pharisees. Verse 5, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. That'll be important in just a moment. Verse 6, be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I remember once in school, we had to learn how to bake bread and I worked out that yeast is a very small ingredient relative to the rest of the stuff, but it kind of grows and it spreads throughout the whole lump of dough, which is why in this context it's a great metaphor for false teaching. The repeated testing of Jesus for miraculous signs is actually the indication that these people do not believe the word of God that they study. Hence, sooner or later, it must be the case that their teaching will in fact take you away from the Lord rather than draw you to ongoing faith. Now, because the disciples hadn't taken bread, just a little incidental detail, when Jesus said what he said, they got this weird, wacky idea that somehow he was chastising them for forgetting the bread. Jesus sets them straight by pointing out, for example, he's got no problem getting basketfuls of bread out of a kid's lunch. They'd seen it twice already. And by the end of the conversation, verse 12, they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast using bread, you know, watch out for that evil yeast, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when you hear that whole conversation, when it was read out, uh, as we had it read out just before this sermon, it kind of sounds a bit ridiculous, but actually highlights just how radical Jesus' words would have sounded to these guys. You see, you and I have the benefit of hindsight. We know the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've got false religious system, they've got all sorts of fundamental problems. And we know that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin, that he rose to show that he's, you know, undoubtedly the Christ. These guys didn't have that. And it, for them, was almost unthinkable 
that the religious leaders of their day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who made it their life's work to learn and memorise the scriptures, could somehow be the ones that Jesus says you've got to guard against. But once you realise that the fascination with miracles can very easily be a distraction or a deliberate way of avoiding the word of God, that Jesus himself both taught and fulfilled, well, then you realise that, yes, you do need to be on your guard against the teaching of those that think miraculous signs are somehow necessary for saving faith. And what Jesus says here is actually a big teaching point all across the New Testament. Uh, For example, the Apostle Paul later on would say that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or again, in his letter to the Romans, when he's actually speaking about salvation, Paul would say, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Again, from the writer to the Hebrews, though he rightly points out that God testified to the validity of the gospel message by signs, wonders and various miracles. He doesn't therefore assume that we need to seek more of those things. Instead, his big point, the thing he insists on, is that we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. The signs are peripheral and can be misinterpreted, just like the Pharisees would say, well, they're the signs that you're working for Satan. They can really be misinterpreted. What we've heard is what is considered essential. Friends, Jesus warned his followers to be on their guard against the teaching of those who required miraculous signs to legitimise the word of God, rather than seeing those signs as a testimony to God's already legitimate word. And in our day and age, sadly, it's still easy to find Christian teachers for whom displays of supernatural signs frankly, are given more credit and attention than the work of the Spirit who communicates truth by the Word. Now, it is true that you can know all this, which I suspect you, I suspect I'm preaching to the choir, you can know and and accept all this, and still, as I have done from time to time, think it will be totally awesome to witness some kind of undeniably, supernaturally, miraculous power directly from the hand of God. And it's also true that God is absolutely capable of doing that and certainly does do things like that. But be very careful what you wish for, or as I should say, be careful what you might pray for. The Apostle Paul was at one point, we are told in the Bible, caught up to the third heaven and had an unspeakable spiritual experience. You can read about this, it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But lest Paul then become conceited or think there was something that somehow made him more special in the sight of God, God saw it necessary to give Paul, quote, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment him, so that he would be forced to remember 
that God's grace alone was sufficient for him. It is not actually always good or pleasant to witness a supernatural sign, but it is always good to trust God's spirit-affirmed word, knowing that he has given us absolutely everything we need to live in accordance with his will. His grace most certainly is sufficient for us. Now, I did say at the beginning that this part of Matthew's gospel shows us we're not to be concerned with supernatural signs, but we're to be concerned with supernatural revelation. And signs can and are subservient to the revelation of God. But we move now from the negative. We move from the warning against the false sign believers to the positive, the ones who respond rightly to God's revelation about Jesus. This next part of Matthew's gospel is an absolute high point, not only of Matthew, but really it's a high point of all the gospels. It's the point at which his disciples begin to recognise him as what I'm going to call the gate-crashing Messiah. From verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, if you can remember back a couple of weeks to chapter 14, they've already worshipped Jesus as the divine Son of God. It was in that whole walking on the water thing that Jesus did, right? But that doesn't mean that these guys can't sort of ebb and flow in their learning and understanding about who Jesus is. It's natural that they are often plagued with doubt and confusion throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. But here it does seem there's something really resolute about Peter's response. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We'll find out soon enough, next week as a matter of fact, that Peter definitely doesn't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. But here, nonetheless, he certainly affirms that Jesus is the Messiah, even if that puts him at odds with what other people are saying about Jesus. He's put the stake firmly in the ground. And that makes Jesus truly excited. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 17, Jesus replied... Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, by the way, if you don't know, the word Petros, Peter, is also rock in Greek. It's just a little wordplay. You are Peter, and on this, on this Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you, Peter... The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah because they haven't fully got the right picture yet. But the stake is in the ground. That's a big whoa moment, okay? Peter had been with Jesus for almost all the time of Jesus' public ministry. But even then, it's only because God gave Peter the revelation that he now resolutely affirms that Jesus is the Christ. And he's not doing some crazy miracle, they're just walking along and having a chat. And that's when it happens. And not only is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God that Peter's now convinced of, he's the Christ who will build his church on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles, as we'll find out later in Acts chapter 2 and Ephesians 4. 
and that his church will, in a manner of speaking, gatecrash hell. I'll tell you what I mean by that. I used to think that when it says in, in, in the, that verse, uh, what is it, uh, 17 and 18, I used to think that when it says the gates of Hades will not overcome the church, the idea was that Jesus saves all these people, the, the church, those who trust in him, and even though they're the kinds of people that will face, you know, sort of spiritual attack and difficulty, in the end, Jesus will return and, and will be vindicated. Now, that's all absolutely true. That's true. But it's true, I think, from elsewhere in the Bible. I don't think that's Jesus' point here. See, Hades is literally the place of the dead. It can include hell and also include heaven. Though in this context, I don't think it includes heaven because it's something that's opposed to Jesus' church. So I think we're talking about death and hell. And the church is made up by those for whom those things um, cannot overcome. But it's not the things, it's the gate, the gate of Hades. What is a gate for? Well, a gate's actually a defensive thing. It's to keep the evil hordes out or the attacking army out of the city. But Jesus says the gates of Hades, they're not going to be able to stop him. In other words, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, I'm invading death and hell. That's the church. I'm like pulling them out. The gates can't stop me getting people to, to make it, you know, again, figurative, but a little bit more concrete. The church is made up of those who can't be held by death, but who are united with the one who is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus' church is made up of those whom death and hell cannot keep a hold of because Jesus has gatecrashed those things. And you know what? That is the truly impressive, supernatural and miraculous work of the Lord. You can't see it, but that blows all the other stuff out of the water. Jesus' own death and burial, followed by his resurrection, which of course mimics the experience of Jonah, that event will enable his followers to fear not the schemes of man and to fear not even the power of death and hell. Now, the Apostle Peter, who's receiving this glorious revelation, would go on later in his life to write to the church and he would say, brothers and sisters, though you, the church, have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls, souls that death and hell no longer has a claim over. And even more wonderfully, Peter will then teach that the same non-flesh and blood revelation by which people come to know Jesus as the Christ is the revelation found not in signs, but in the word of God. The next verse, as a matter of fact, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah, and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them to they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The angels, they, they're not longing to look into the miraculous power. They're longing to, to look into the word of God. 
the spirit-inspired word that gave salvation, the word that came to Peter on the day he resolutely recognised that Jesus is the Christ. That was the divine revelation of God, and it's the same revelation that became the means by which Jesus built his church. To summarise, God reveals saving truth by his Christ-centred, spirit-given word. And of course, I couldn't help but just to chuck a little line in there because I'm greedy. I can't help but notice that it comes to those not who are demanding, Jesus, you've got to show me that you're really, give me enough evidence, but it comes to those who are humble. The sort of bumbling apostles like Peter who so often gets things wrong, God just reveals it to him. Friends, an obvious implication given this point is that our faith ought not to be in what can be seen, currently at least, but in what is unseen. I bet a lot of you probably are familiar with the famous words of Hebrews 11 verse 1 that don't actually give a comprehensive definition of faith, but do give a good definition nonetheless, where it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's actually right that the saving recognition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is something that ultimately comes to all Christians by the supernatural revelation of the Father, by the Spirit, and in accordance with His Spirit-inspired Word, which you guys are now holding in your hands. There is no need for any kind of supernatural sign in order that we might have genuine faith and in fact, the insistence on having a sign could end up being the result of an impoverished or confused faith. Lastly, as we've seen Jesus declare that he would build his church on the foundation of the apostles, beginning with the, the head apostle, Peter, part of taking Jesus at his word means that we must give our assent to the notion that we are saved and sanctified, that is, we keep growing as followers of Jesus, by the apostolic gospel, by the gospel that the apostles received and passed on. Now, I'm saying that kind of, you know, carefully and emphatically, and you guys are probably thinking, why? Well, they, of course it makes sense, you know, the, the apostles got the gospel from Jesus and they, they passed it on, and, and that's the same gospel that saves us. Why is Ben being a little bit emphatic about this? I'll tell you why. There are huge Christian so-called traditions, huge bodies of teaching that actually reject this idea. They rely on something that we call apostolic succession. The idea was that in the first century there was Peter and he received the message about how to be saved, to recognise Jesus the Christ. And so for his generation, he was the head apostle and you're saved because of his teaching. And then in the next generation, there's another someone who has the same office, who's kind of like in the line of the apostles. And what they say becomes really important for the salvation of the church in their generation. And then there's another one, etc. It's not the gospel that comes through the apostles that's delivered once for all. It's the head honcho. It's the next office bearer who's somehow got a connection with the apostolic line. Uh, it's prevalent in both Roman Catholicism. This is the idea behind the papacy or popes and also prevalent in Mormonism, where they've actually got 
a system of people who are appointed apostles. And so in every successive generation, you need some super spiritual person to reveal to you the truth that you need. Friends, that is a huge problem and it's hugely unbiblical. And if I had to take Jesus' words here to his disciples saying, guard against the teaching of the Sadducees and the the Pharisees, I think a modern day application for us is guard against any teaching that kind of says, you need this particular, important, spiritual person with his apostolic office. You need him or you need her in order to know how to live the life God wants you to live. Rubbish. Not true. Friends, you have no need that anyone should teach you. The Spirit of God indwells you just as it does me. The Word of God is the Spirit-inspired revelation of the Lord and you all hold it in your hand. Now I know we've got varying degrees of understanding of the Word of God, but we're all on the same playing field. No such thing as the spiritual guru in the church. And that's actually a really wonderful and positive thing. Because it means that we don't have kind of like second and third rate Christians. We've just got one body of Christ. Sure, at different parts in the walk, but we're all kind of on the equal playing field. I think that's a beautiful thing.